Please turn with me tonight to the book of Nehemiah. This will be probably the last time we turn there. I guess there's always that chance that I won't finish the message tonight, but I think I will. And uh, we're going to close out this look of the character of leadership in Nehemiah 13 tonight. We have enjoyed here going through the book of Nehemiah and seeing what God has to teach us about um, our commitment to leading for him. Leadership is influence. It is influencing another in a way that we feel is important. And of course, in the things of God, we want, we want to influence people towards, the, towards following him and serving him. And of course, ultimately, um, we have to begin with the gospel and helping them to know, have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And God has called all of his followers to lead for him. I said it before, I'll say it now, and I'll say it again at the end tonight. There are two types of people in the world. There are leaders and there are followers. Those are the categories you fall into. And, and, and God has called every Christian to be a leader in some way or another because the world we live in wants nothing to do with God, wants nothing to do with the things of God. And so we can either be a follower of the world and, and, and be pushed into the mold of those things, or we can be a leader. We can stand out against, from that. Now, not all of us are called to lead in exactly the same ways. We understand that. You know, some people lead, lead very openly and very um, outwardly and, and have other and have larger influences than other people, but God has still called us to lead, and that's from 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 young all the way up to to old. There are opportunities for us to lead for Him, and so in the book of Nehemiah, we have looked at what does the character of leadership look like? What are things that leaders do? What are things that how how do leaders believe and behave? And we've talked about how we respond to sin in our lives and the things of God. And so now we turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, and we talk about tonight, as we close the book of Nehemiah, the necessity of leadership in our lives. How many of you are familiar with Nehemiah 13? You're familiar with what we're about to tackle tonight? Anybody? Okay. One or two, I see some, some heads nodding. Okay. If you're not, I, I'm not trying to give away the end of the story, but we're going to read it here in a second. I'm just going to tell you that sometimes stories don't end the way we want them to. The team winning the big game chokes away the victory, right? The, the, the outmatched opponent gets demolished by that, that despised larger opponent, the evildoer seems to grab the upper hand in the workplace or in the government or elsewhere. Or perhaps there's the family member who's at odds with another. And they almost make things right. And then at the last minute, they turn away. Right? Not every story has that ending that we, we say, oh, yeah, that was great, you know. And in a way, I really think that Nehemiah ends in a way that, that at first glance, we don't want it to end. We don't want it to end this way. You know how we want Nehemiah to end? We want Nehemiah to end in chapter 12, where they offer 
sacrifices to God and they consecrate the wall and they celebrate what God has done. And we talked about that last time, how they march around the wall and they meet back and they celebrate. And we read in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43, also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. And you want to be like, that's great, that's the end of the book. You know, and you walk away, that was amazing, right? What a great story of, of leading for God and, and overcoming adversity and, and the people of God getting right with God and doing amazing things, and you just want to go out on that. But Nehemiah doesn't go out on that. You have to read Nehemiah chapter 13. And, and I'll be honest with you, Nehemiah 13, some of that you, you, at first glance is really discouraging because it's like we've already dealt with all of this stuff, and now we're dealing with it again. For 12 years, Nehemiah led as governor of Jerusalem. And what we get in 12 chapters is, is not even a full year of that. We get about seven months, roughly, of Nehemiah's first year as governor. He would have 11 and change more years that he would lead for God. Now, we don't told anything else about those other 11 years, but it's probably safe to assume that those 12 years... They were not perfect because no human is perfect. But they were filled with similar commitment to God and rebuilding of the people in that area. However, after 12 years, Nehemiah had to return to Persia. He had to return to the empire. Remember, Nehemiah is still an employee of the Persian empire. He still has to go back. You almost forget that he has another job, right? Because he's been allowed to to do these things uh, uh, for, for his people. We're not told for how long Nehemiah was absent. Some commentators believe it was probably one to two years. And in Nehemiah 13, we read of his return to Jerusalem, and it is a sad and honestly very miserable scene. Nehemiah returned to a people doing much the same as they had done before. The warnings of Nehemiah have been disregarded. The promises of the people to God that they made in chapter 10 are forgotten. And the city is once again given over to worldliness instead of godliness. The leadership that Nehemiah left behind failed. And the people state that we find in Nehemiah 13 is a result. It comes out of a failure of leadership. Godly leadership is necessary if we are going to see godliness survive the generation gap. If you want to see godliness pass from one generation to another, godly leadership is necessary in our lives. God is calling his own to step up and do right, to follow him and say no to following the world, sin, and the flesh that pulls us to disobedience. And so no, I would be the first to tell you, Nehemiah 13 isn't the chapter we hope it would be. But it's the ending we need. It shows us the reality of sin and the necessity of leadership for God. It shows us that on this side of eternity, confrontation of sin in our lives is always going to be something that has to take place. It's a very realistic look. And it encourages us. I really think there's a huge encouragement here because it encourages us with the fact that just like us, Others have struggled with the same sins repeatedly. How many of you have ever, you'd be willing to admit, you have struggled in your life with a certain, with a specific sin or sins on a, on a, on a off again, on again, off again basis? Okay, thank you. Some of you are struggling with lying, okay? But uh, 
it's, it's, it's human, right? It's human. We, we struggle with that. It's part of our sin nature. There there's just seems to be things that, that just, for whatever reason, we go back to. And, and you ever felt like you're the only one? Like, man, nobody else struggles with this. Everybody else, God convicts them, and they get right with God, you know? And then you read things, like, about the Israelites, and go, wow, I mean, they struggle with the same things over and over again. Okay, not only did they struggle with the same things over again, over and over again, God inspired them to be written down so we would read about them for all of, all of eternity, okay? So at least God didn't write your sin down for everybody else to read about it. It's an encouragement to our heart in that way and a challenge to us that we need to stand against sin in our lives, and it shows us the necessity of godly leadership to stand up against sin. And what we see here in this chapter is that godly leadership confronts sin biblically and sets actions and behaviors aright in accordance with God's word. Notice those terms, okay? Godly leadership confronts sin how? Biblically. On the basis of Scripture. Not, you're doing this and I don't like it, but you're doing this and God says this. And it sets behaviors aright in accordance with God's word. God's word is the standard for everything we do in life as Christians. Followers of God. And, and of course, you know, here in Nehemiah, Christ has not come and died, but these are God's people. These are people that God has called to live for him in accordance with his word. And so we'll go through the chapter tonight and we'll just read these sections as we get to them. And we'll see exactly how things had gone in Jerusalem while Nehemiah was gone for that. We don't, again, in, in uh, unrevealed amount of time, probably, again, one to two years that most people believe. So we see, first of all, the disregard of family purity that takes place. And it really begins, it's interesting how the chapter opens. It opens with a refocusing on the word of God. Look at Nehemiah 13, verses 1 through 3. On that day... They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was, when they had heard the law, they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel." So chapter 13 begins by bringing us to the point of Nehemiah's return. And really what, what you find in Nehemiah 13 is Nehemiah's reforms of the city in Jerusalem. And so on that day is not the day at the end of chapter 12. You have to understand the chapter, you know, the break that takes place here to really understand the context. And so Nehemiah is is now back in Jerusalem and dealing with the issues that, fought, that, that are at hand and that have taken place. And he's dealing with them by going where? What is he reading from? He's reading from, verse 1, the book of Moses. What is the book of Moses? It's the law of God, right? It's what they would, you know, God used Moses. Now, I'm going to show you specifically what we believe they were reading um, from Deuteronomy here in just a second. But he's going to the word of God. A mark of spiritual leadership is addressing and correcting problems biblically. We should not be dealing with things from a because I said so mentality, but based on what God's word says is right and wrong, and based on the principles that God's word gives us for how we're, supposed, how we're to live. And that begins 
in our personal lives. When you sin, and you and I do sin, when we sin, we need to call it out before the Lord using his word. Confess it as sin and violation of God's word. We need to let God's we need to let the word of God convict us of our sin and show us the way of obedience. And it goes then it goes beyond that. You know, I would I would challenge I live again, I live the, the parent life a lot. So when you parent your children, we say this a lot in our house, you know, use Bible words when you're correcting your children's sin. You know, we make up these these phrases and these these wordings, you know, um, hey, don't uh, don't stretch the truth, right? Hey, don't 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 tell a white lie, right? No, what does the Bible say? Don't lie. Now, if you'll be really biblical, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, right? Now, don't lie. God says he, he hates lying. Um, when we've taught our kids, okay, and you can ask them afterwards, you know, don't be a fool. Don't don't act foolish. Okay, you're acting foolish, and this is what the Bible says about a fool. We don't have to make up softer-sounding phrases to excuse sin. We need to call out what is wrong and show others the way to fix it. But we also need to, to deal with it in the way that God tells us to deal with it. Again, probably the place where we give the biggest pass is in our own lives. Well, you know, at that moment, I was just, no, that was sin. That was wrong. God, I was wrong. This is what your word says about it. I'm confessing it. I'm repenting. I'm going to deal with this in a biblical way. If we're dealing with sin in the lives of other people or we're confessing our own sin against another, help them see what the Bible says and model it yourself by confessing your own sin appropriately. One of the best things that a spiritual leader does, one of the biggest marks of a spiritual leader is also that they deal with their own sin biblically. It's not about going around dealing with everybody else's sin. It's, it's, it begins personally. Hey, I did this. I was wrong. This is what I need to do to make it right. God's word is not only necessary, it is what is appropriate in confronting sin. So Nehemiah reads from the law, from the word of God, to the Jews. Now, the scripture they're reading deals specifically with the purity of the family. Most likely, it's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. The Ammonites and the Moabites had come from an incestuous relationship within the family of Lot. And they were enemies of Israel. And God called on his people to separate from these groups. Now, we read specifically the Moabites had hired this man named Balaam. You may remember that story. It's in Numbers. Balaam to curse Israel. But God prevented this from happening. And reminding the people of these things, Nehemiah then began to see God work in their midst again. We see that, that they began to separate themselves from the mixed multitude, those who had intermarried with those. The job of spiritual leadership is to point people to God and his word. God's word is powerful and will do a mighty work. We don't have to twist arms. We just need to let God do the work. And now we hold the line for what is right. And we show people what is right. 
But it's not our job to convict. It's not our job to, to beat people over the head, right? It's our job to, to preach the word of God faithfully and proclaim it. And it must be backed up by biblical actions, which we see Nehemiah doing here throughout this chapter. The Jews had promised in Nehemiah chapter 10 that they would guard their family purity and would not mix with the peoples of the land. They had failed in that regard, and now there literally is a house cleaning that has to take place. Look as we go further in Nehemiah chapter 13. Look at starting verse 4 all the way down to verse 9. Now before this... Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly, therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. In verses 4 through 9, there's a shocking series of events as the enemy literally moves in. We learn that one of the outspoken of the enemies of the Jews has, is now living close at hand to God's people. If you'll remember back as we've gone through the book of Nehemiah, we've met Tobiah before. He and Sanballat were the outspoken uh, opposition to the Jews' rebuilding of the wall. And he has now moved in uh, close to the people. We'll talk about where that is in just a second. But we see who is it that's helping him? It's Eliashib. And who is Eliashib? He is, yeah, not not just a priest, right? He's a priest. He's the high priest. He is the guy in charge of the worship of the temple. He is responsible for leading God's people in God's ways and helping them lead God's people uh, or leading God's people to worship him correctly. And he participated in the rebuilding of the wall. If you go to Nehemiah chapter 3, where you find a record of all the people who worked on the wall, guess whose name is the very first name in the chapter? Eliashib. Yet he has failed God and his people tremendously. He is allied with, or, or really probably the word is better translated here, he is related to Tobiah. We take this to mean that through marriage, he is somehow related to him. We, we read it in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Of Berechiah. Tobiah is the sworn enemy of the Jews. It's really interesting what Tobiah's name means. Tobiah's name means Yahweh is good. Yahweh, of course, is the special name that God gave to his people to call him by. Well, he certainly doesn't believe that, and he certainly doesn't live it out. Some commentators believe that that what that means is he was perhaps born to a Jewish family, and he's turned to the Ammonites. Because we read in chapter 2, verse 10, that he is an Ammonite official. 
He openly mocked the work of the Jews along with Samballot and was involved in a plan to attack the work of God. And after all of this, he's being given safe haven in Jerusalem. But it's far worse than that because he's been given a place to live that's attached to the temple. Does that not boil your blood a little bit when you read that? I mean, come on, right? One of the storerooms that should have housed the things needed for the worship and support of the temple has been repurposed into Tobiah's own private abode. And we very simply have to say, what a tremendous failure by Eliashib. No doubt, Nehemiah trusted him to lead the people righteously. And instead, he brought the enemy in and desecrated part of God's temple. When, spiritual, when the spiritual leadership in people's lives fails, the results are catastrophic. You see that happen time and time again. Now, that does not undermine the power and the grace of God to do work, okay? But there is certainly much harm done if it's not corrected and handled in a proper manner. Nehemiah returns from his duties then in the kingdom and begins to set things aright. And I think of everything in this chapter, maybe everything in the whole book of Nehemiah, one of the most satisfying things you read is here in verse 13, or I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 8, and it grieved me bitterly, therefore I threw out all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Can you just imagine Nehemiah just chucking everything this guy owns to the curb out in front of the t- temple. Am I the only one who, who, gets, who kind of laughs, at, you know, kind of smiles at that? Like, I mean, that's, that's kind of cool, right? I mean, here he is. He's like, I mean, we know who this guy is. He's told us who he is, and now he's living in the temple. Get out of here. The eviction notice is served. You have been foreclosed. You haven't been foreclosed on. You've just been thrown out, right? So Nehemiah again, is undoubtedly angry at what has occurred. I talked about that this morning with Jesus' um, cleansing of the temple. This anger is directed at sin and an attack on God's temple and an attack on God's people. Nehemiah's actions are neither unwarranted nor necessarily sinful because what he's trying to do is restore the temple to its proper use. You know, the actions that we read here do sound familiar to what we read this morning in John chapter 2 as Jesus cleansed the temple. And then they, they go in and they cleanse the temple. As, as many authors have put it, it's almost like they went in and they fumigated the whole place, you know, to get the stink of Tobiah out of the temple. But they, what they had to do is they had to go in and, and restore and, and reclaim the temple to be used in the worship of God. The evil done by the very person who should have done right is corrected. But then there are other families that must be addressed as well. If you would, skip down with me to verse 23 and look at the familial trouble that's going on in Israel. In those days, I, saw, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. 
Should we not? Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I drove him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. It may be unsurprising, it probably should be unsurprising to us to see that the general public, what they did in regard to their families. You know, if we see the spiritual leadership tolerating the enemy living in the temple, does it surprise you that the rest of the people are tolerating these things as well? It shouldn't. The people had promised in chapter 10 in their covenant not to marry the people in the land, but we see that's not the case. They had married those from the Philistine city of Ashdod, as well as the Ammonites and the Moabites, people God has specifically told them to avoid, and as we have seen earlier. God longed for the purity of his people. He deserved their undivided love and loyalty. And pagan peoples would do nothing but destroy that devotion. When God forbids them to marry the Ammonites and the Moabites, this is not a racial issue. This is an idolatry issue. Because what they were going to bring with them were these false gods and would turn the hearts of the people away from the one true God. And truly, that's already underway. Tobiah's dwelling in the temple was a physical picture of the spiritual reality of what's going on in Israel. And it's extending into the families. The next generation is already being lost. Did you see that, that half of the children don't know Hebrew or Aramaic, the, the language of God's people? How could they be the bridge from here to the eventual Messiah if they were drifting farther away from the core of what it meant to be a Jew? You know why it's so important they know Hebrew? Because that's what the law of God was written in. That was his language he communicated to them in. The culture was being watered down and lost. And as these cultural parts would go, so too would the devotion to the one true God. These men had made a serious mistake in whom they married. And there would be consequences. Nehemiah, for his part, brought down immediate physical consequences. Sometimes we read this, I mean, I think, not just sometimes, a lot of times we read this and our eyes kind of look, wow, what is he doing to these people? Well, let's talk through that, right? It says that he cursed them. Now, this is not Nehemiah using chosen words against the people, okay? You understand that. What he's talking about is he's proclaiming curses from the law of God upon people who disobey. God had said, if you do this, curse you will be, right? These are the things that you do not do. So he's appealing to the law of God, pronouncing these curses on them for their disobedience. We don't understand every little contextual part about this, um, but it talks about how some of them um, received beatings, right? They, they, were, uh, they were struck. Some had their hair pulled out. We do know that, that it was a shame in Israel for one's beard to, to be lost. So perhaps what we see here, it was the, the beard hair that was plucked out of some of these. And knowing, knowing Nehemiah's actions and character, I don't think that Nehemiah is just raging through Jerusalem, you know, hitting people and pulling out hair. You know, that just doesn't fit with, with who he is. These are probably some type of prescribed punishments for their sin. Sin always has consequences, now, sometimes those consequences are physical. Sometimes those consequences seem very harsh, but they are given to remind us of the price of sin. Now, that is not to say that when, we, when somebody does something wrong against us, we go pull their hair out and beat them. Okay, that is, This is not, you know, we look at, the, oh, I mean, that's what we're supposed to do, right? But 
we, we, we assume, again, knowing Nehemiah's character and leadership, that, that there was some kind of prescribed punishment here. But we must remember God's stance on sin. It's very firm and very strong against sin. Our response to sin, again, starting in our own lives, our response to sin should be extreme. We, we have this we have this thing, I mean, because, again, we, we're born in sin and we struggle with sin. And even though we know we mean the Lord is our Savior, we still struggle with our sin every day. And we, we're, we're, we're trying to, to grow in the Lord. But we kind of take, to our own detriment, this casual view of sin that, that God doesn't take. God doesn't take sin lightly. He takes it very seriously. And so should we. Again, not that when you sin, that you walk around, well, I guess that's it. You know, I'm out of the club, you know. But... Neither should we say, eh, you know, God's got it, it's grace. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a happy, there's a, there's a medium there, right? There's, a, there's a, a line of, we take that very seriously. Now, now it is forgiven by God, but, but I need to address this. I need to make this right, and, and I don't want to do this again because it hurts my relationship with God. Nehemiah then called on these people to swear again before God they would not do this. It's interesting in Ezra, when this happened, Ezra called for divorces of these relationships. Nehemiah does not do so, but he calls for a changed behavior going forward. And after this, or along with this, Nehemiah then uses an illustration from the past and basically gives a sermon here, a very brief one. Nehemiah reaches back to a reference of the richest and arguably most successful, at least from the world's man's perspective, king in Israel's history, Solomon. Solomon is the king who had it all. I mean, you look around at Solomon's kingdom, it was amazing. There was so much peace. There were people who were subservient to them. There, were, there was gold flowing into the kingdom. You read all the things that Solomon built and what he did. I mean, it was amazing, right? Yet, Solomon had a problem. The problem became that everything Solomon had, had Solomon. You got to be careful that what you have doesn't have you. And that's exactly what happened in Solomon's life. His heart was turned away by the pagan women that he took to himself. And the problems that the Jews were facing now are nothing new to mankind or Jewish history. It's interesting. It says here in uh, verse 26, Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. That probably refers to um, the name Jedidiah that, that Solomon was sometimes called by. Um, God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women ceased, or caused him even to sin. Here was this guy. I mean, he's loved by God like, like everyone. He, he had everything set up for him to do what was right. And he turned away at the end of his life from serving God. And the problems the Jews are facing are the same. The sin would bring the same results. You know, we're tempted to think sometimes in our lives, we, we begin to entertain sin in our lives. We begin to bring it into our lives. We think, well, I mean, I know this is wrong, but this time will be different. I know I shouldn't go down this path to react in this way, but, but I'll handle it differently this time. Well, you know, I have a stronger fortitude than other people do. And thus, we think we could stand up against the onslaught of a seeming disaster. But this is nothing but foolishness and simplicity, which are not good things in the Bible. 
Proverbs 27, 12, a prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. You know what that communicates? That communicates that, that actively we should be looking ahead and see the evil and the wrong that sin brings and see the consequences that will come and then we avoid that sin. If we study the word of God and live discerningly, we can see the evil that lies before us with God, and with God's help we can avoid it. If we do not, we end up in trouble as the people here have done. The people have God's word. They have the records of those who had sinned in the past. They had their covenant with God, yet they continue to do wrong. Understand that at this point, much of what we have in the Old Testament has been written down and preserved. They have all of these things. They have the covenant they wrote down and signed, but they did nothing with it. And as this section comes to a close, we learn of another one in Eliashib's family causing trouble. We read of Eliashib's grandson, and we read now that he is married to Sanballat's daughter. That was, yes, that's the Sanballat that opposed Israel along with Tobiah. This grandson, who would have most certainly served in the temple, is banished from doing so. We see Nehemiah banish him from that. You think, wow, that's, that's pretty severe. Well, there is a higher standard for leaders to adhere to and consequences for such a public failure. This is not mean, again, they are out of reach of God's grace, but it does not eliminate the consequences of our sin. The priests and the Levites were God's servants to God's people. And so, in verse 29, notice what Nehemiah does. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. At the end of the day, where does Nehemiah place the ultimate judgment for the sin of these leaders? He places it in the hands of God. You're the one who's going to take care of this. You're the one who's going to... Now, he had to take, undertake some, some immediate consequences on this side, right? He had to, to get them out. They couldn't be doing these things and leading the worship of God. But at the end of the day, he's leaving God to balance the scales. Because God always deals with sin in his way, in his timing. That's what Nehemiah is counting on. And so that, that's the largest section we're going to look at tonight. But everything kind of flows out of that, you know, um, sin, sin could often be compared um, to a snowball. Okay, how many of you have ever made like a ginormous snowball, right? Um, that was one of the things, again, I'm from the South originally, and so when we got snow in, in the South, it was like that much. And by the time you made this dinky little snowman, you had no snow left in your yard. And I remember when we moved up here, that uh, the first time, I mean, the, the day we moved up here, the night we moved in, it snowed six inches, okay? Welcome to Michigan. And so I we went out with the kids, and we made this huge snowman. And guess what? The more you roll it, the bigger it gets. You know, sin works like that in our lives. The more you tolerate it, the bigger it gets. The harder it gets to deal with. And we see that, that like a snowball even rolling downhill, the sins of this chapter, I, I feel, are, are definitely connected one to another. Next, we see the disregard of the temple provisions. This takes place in verses 10 through 14. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given to them, for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together to set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. 
And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, Padiah, and next to him was Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. You can hardly house an enemy of Israel in the temple and not expect that the work of God will suffer. And it did. Remember, Tobiah lived in the store, one of the storerooms. What was supposed to be in the storerooms? All the things that the people weren't bringing anymore. Because guess what? When the enemy moves in, what's the message being communicated? Well, we're not really concerned about what God says anymore. Okay, great. So therefore, that tithe that I was supposed to be bringing to God's place, I don't need to bring it anymore. And that's exactly what happened. You can see the effect the people quit bringing the tithe, and so the Levites are supposed to be provided by, for by God's people. They, don't, they aren't supposed to go and do their own thing. They're supposed to devote themselves to the work of God. Why? Because God's going to take care of them. And when God's people stop tithing and God's people stop giving to the work of the temple, guess what they have to do? They have to go back to work. And again, do we blame them? And so when they go back to work, what stops the worship of God. You see, you see the effects? And it all starts with the decision that was made about families and Tobiah. And as such, the work has fallen into disregard. When the people stopped giving, the problems then compounded. And yet again, this is a direct violation of God's word. Deuteronomy twelve nineteen: Take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. Giving to the work of God is one of the first places that spiritual decline in our lives is seen. When we are not right spiritually, when we are not right with God, one of those first outward manifestations does come up in our giving. It's true in Israel and it was true today. One author said it this way, giving is both the thermostat and the thermometer of the Christian life. It measures our spiritual temperature and it also helps set it at the right level. Generosity is the hallmark of the follower of God, as God is generous to us. And so Nehemiah tackles this head on. He begins to reform the practices. We see this word come up a couple of times here um, in verse 11, so I contended with the rulers. You'll see that again. That word also can be translated confronted. Nehemiah is not a man who's afraid to confront sin head on, and he does that over and over again. He confronts the leaders here about forsaking God's house. And he contends that for, for that which pleases and obeys God and sets the men in their right places to receive the gifts. He puts them out there and says, okay, you know, here we're going we're gonna to expect these things to come in. And with the reforms underway, do you notice what happens? The people give again. God's people long to give to God's work that's done in a godly way. That's seen time and again. And when God's leaders get, get things going in a godly way again, these people respond positively to that. And the best giving that any ministry or work of God can experience is that which is motivated by God himself. And then Nehemiah appoints these faithful trustees to watch over these things. So as the gifts come in, there need to be those who are in charge of it. They, they were to preside over it, and they were to distribute it to God's servants and make sure it was used appropriately. And for this... Nehemiah, again, needs good leaders. 
Notice, Nehemiah doesn't look for the flashy or the popular or the big names. He chose men that were described as one word. Did you catch that word in verse 13, how they were described? Faithful. That's the word. These men, for they were considered faithful. They had done the work God called them to do in the way God called them to do it. Do you know above everything else, God is looking for faithful leaders. He's looking for faithful people. He is not looking for the one with the most converts to their name. He's not looking for the one with the most friends in their circle of influence, the best communicator, the most talented, or anything else that we want to try to measure as mankind. He is looking for a consistent, obedient servant that he can use. Faithfulness cannot be underrated in God's economy. And here, Nehemiah then calls for God to remember what has been done here. You read verse 14, this is a plea for God's help for his people to do what needs to be done. He wishes to not see that reform undertaken, undone by their neglect. Godly leaders pray for God's people, which is exactly what Nehemiah does here. And we now see another problem in the community that had to be addressed. We see in verses 15 through 22 the disregard of the Sabbath. In those days, I saw the people, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah, and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do, by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was, the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut, and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates, so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, and that they should go and guard the gates and sanctify, to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Here the people are degrading God's day. The people, again, in, verse, in chapter 10, had promised to keep and observe the Sabbath as God had commanded. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. It was a day set aside of, to rest and a day vital to the covenant made between God and his people. It was a protected day that was given to the worship of God. But the people had forgotten this covenant and this command by God. And they instead began to use the Sabbath for their own gain and their own means. They carried on with their work, not taking a day off from what could be more profit. They traded 
They bought and they sold with others on this day as well. Not just Jewish people, but, but Gentiles. And, and the Gentiles, under no covenant with God, were all too happy to oblige the Jews on the Sabbath. Hey, you want to buy the fish? You want to sell us your stuff? We'll be happy to come by Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. They probably didn't call it the Sabbath day, right? We'll be happy to come by on that day and we'll, we'll continue to do business. Instead of showing the difference a relationship with God made, God's people acted like everybody else. This is one of those things that doesn't seem like a big deal. But it is because God had been very specific in his law towards his people. And Nehemiah reminds them that sins have consequences. Nehemiah, again, confronts the leadership. They should have been taking measure against such actions, but did nothing to stop it. Again, follow the effect. The, 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 the families degrade. Tobiah moves into the temple. The, the worship of the temple stops. When the worship of the temple stops, who cares about the Sabbath too? Right? It just all flows out of each other. Nehemiah reminds them that in the past, there had been such an evil done. They had profaned the Sabbath. And he said that eventually, this was part of what led to the exile of God's people. Remember how the people had come back from, from the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire in the first place? Well, what led them there, Nehemiah says, is profaning the Sabbath. Breaking God's law. Understand that in the eyes of God, there is no such thing as a small sin. There is no such thing as an acceptable or respectable sin. Sin is sin. Now, the consequences of sin may vary, but the results are the same. It puts us at odds with God. God judges all sin. And even though the world may see something as surely okay, that doesn't mean that God's people can tolerate it. The world is not our barometer. God's word is. But so often we as Christians live with the world as this barometer of, okay, I'm not that bad, so I'm okay. You can find a lot of things that you're not as bad as. This is where you need to look. What does God say? What does God tell us to do? God told the Israelites to observe the Sabbath, and they failed to do so. And so they needed a refocusing on God. And so Nehemiah reformed, undertook some reforms and took some practical steps. He made it physically impossible for them to break this law. Do you see what he did? He sealed up the city, and he put guards in front of it. Just go out there and try to sell now, right? I mean, this, it seems extreme, but again, he takes sin very seriously. No one was granted entrance or exit to do work or carry out business on the Sabbath day. And he also then took a stand against those who have been on the other side of those transactions. It's interesting. It says, once or twice, these merchants returned looking to do business. And Nehemiah turned them away. And not only turned them away, he said, hey, if you keep coming back here, there's going to be repercussions. And they just don't come back, right? They get the, the message. The policies of God's people were just that. They're the policies of God's people that he had set forth for his own. Therefore, they had to set the terms for what would happen if one tried to go against these things that were now clearly communicated to them. But Nehemiah doesn't just leave it in the hands of whatever contingent he brought with him. Did you see who he eventually turns these things over to? He gives it back to the Levites. He says, you, you are to be in charge of this. 
You're the ones who lead the worship of God. Therefore, you're the ones who need to be watching the gates of the city. This was squarely within their duties as spiritual leadership. And then Nehemiah, again, called for God's help in this matter and for a measure of his merciful love to be poured out on this endeavor. And that brings me back to the question. I asked it this morning. I ask it again in our own lives. How actively do we protect our times of worship to God? We, we are not commanded to keep a Sabbath. That falls in the law of God. But the principles apply seamlessly to our personal and even corporate times with God. As we mentioned this morning, what is it that we allow to get in the way of our worship to God? Do we give enough forethought to setting aside time with God? Are we careful with what events and activities we take on on Saturdays that we may effectively worship God corporately on Sundays? Do we intentionally set aside devices to avoid distractions? Time with God is the most important time we can ever spend. So what do we need to do to make this a priority? And and we are the only ones who can answer that question for our own personal lives. Nehemiah took very practical steps for the people to obey God's law. And with this, we see the necessity of leadership in God's plan for his people. Let's wrap up the book of Nehemiah in verses 30 and 31 by looking at this necessity of leadership. Thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering, uh, the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. There's a replacement of sin here. Nehemiah purified specific things and groups in this chapter, and now it is mentioned again. The people have been challenged to purify their sins, their hearts. And, and to remove that sin from their lives. The leaders are challenged to cease what is wrong and to do what is right. And Nehemiah, in his reforms, has sought to help the people remove their sin again. And if we want to, to be right with God, it must start with turning away from sin. That's the first thing we have to do. If you want to enjoy unhindered relationship with God, you have to constantly and consistently, with the help of God, turn away from wrong. Even as a Christian, we struggle with that. We struggle with sin. We cannot entertain wrong in our lives and expect everything to be okay with God. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the psalmist says, the Lord will not hear, Psalm 66, 18. Sin always hinders our relationship with God. Thus, it is vital that we expunge it from our lives. As a child of God, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you sin, that does not, that does not um, expel you from the kingdom of God. But it does have an effect on your relationship with God. And so we must seek, with God's help, to consistently and constantly reform our lives and, and confront sin in our lives. And then Nehemiah, coupled with that, reinstates right practices among the people. We see that the wood and the first fruit offerings specifically are mentioned here. This is for worship and provision in the temple. Because reform involves both ceasing what is wrong and doing what is right. You can't just stop at not doing wrong. Then you've got to say, okay, now we're going to do right. When we replace, only when we replace sin with right can we be entirely obedient to God. And with that, Nehemiah's recorded work comes to an end. 
And with that, he seeks God's blessing one last time at the end of verse 31. Remember me, oh my God, for good. What we see here is that, that God's blessing is vital on our lives. In the face of it all, Nehemiah seeks the blessing of God. He is a man who lives what he preaches. He stands up for what is right, and then he goes and does what is right. And then he seeks God's blessing on what is done. He leaves it up to God to see what is done and act accordingly. That's what he says here. Hey, God, I want you to see what we've done, but, and then you do whatever is best and right. You and I, we can only control our obedience to God. That's what we've been called to control. Hey, this is what God says. With help, this is what we're going to do. Then God can and God does take our faithfulness and uses it for his glory. All we have is this, this little bit that God has given us and we can offer it to him and he can do amazing things with it. You ever had the opportunity in your life for God just to use you in an amazing way and you just kind of shake your head and say, I, I don't know how. Exactly. Exactly. That's what God does. He takes our little bit and makes it so much more. Godly leadership confronts sin biblically and, and sets actions and behaviors aright in accordance with God's word. What you have seen in this chapter is reformation. Reformation isn't a one-time act. It's an ongoing work. That was true in Nehemiah's day, and that's true in ours as well. We are constantly under God's change if we know him as our Lord and Savior. We need then to constantly submit ourselves to his word that we may live for him ever more day by day. I said at the beginning, there are two types of people in this world. There are leaders, and there are followers. Followers do what feels good in the moment. They give in to their desires. They care little about the consequences, except for in the moment when it all crashes down. Leaders do what is right because that's what God has called them to do. Godly leadership is a necessity for every Christian. We need to exhibit its qualities in our own lives, wherever we are, and we need to submit to those godly leaders that God has placed in our lives. God uses us in his plan to accomplish his amazing work. And I hope that, that as we've gone through this, that there is much for you to take away from the life of Nehemiah, a man who trusted God with everything he had and gave God everything he was in committed, faithful service. And that is what God wants of us today. That we give him everything we are and everything we have and we trust him with our lives and we ask him to, to convict us of sin and lead us in what is right and we, and we seek in his help to do things for him. And only then can we see God use us in ways we never thought possible. What an amazing testimony by this amazing man. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. Thank you for the life of Nehemiah and the few months we've had to look at these things as we've made our way through it. And again, I ask that you would challenge our hearts from the word of God and the life of Nehemiah. Lord, help us to rely fully on you and trust you with everything we have. And then by the same token, Give everything that our actions to you. May we live all in and all out for you. Lord, we confess that we are weak and we do struggle.
we ask that you would convict us of our sin, make us more like Jesus Christ each and every day. Would you show us that the way of uh, following you and living for you is the only way to true joy and fulfillment and the only only way we can truly be used for you and by you. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to lead for you and may the area around Beaverton Baptist Church be affected for the gospel because there are people here who are committed to following God no matter what. And committed to obeying God and showing his love to a world around us. We ask for a wonderful week that we would live for your honor and your glory. In your name we pray, amen.